Hey everyone, I'm your host and producer Lingya, and welcome to the goodbye episode of So This My Why. Now this isn't a permanent goodbye, but it is the final episode of 2022. Hence, goodbye. We're taking a short break next week and we'll be back in the first week of January 2023 with a sneak preview of all things that will be released in the coming months. But first, I would love to start off by first saying thank you. If you're listening to this, thank you so much for listening, for supporting. I started Steamy back in June 2020 because I was curious about people. I wanted to know what drives success for people. What does success mean and how did they achieve it? And I didn't want it to focus on just a very small section of the community, say just founders or just lawyers. I wanted to feature everyone from Olympians to retired four-star general to LinkedIn influencers, the president of law societies, down to former ex-convicts. Because I strongly believe that everyone has a story and lessons that we can all learn from. And I also wanted to prove that, you know what, Asian stories are really valuable and also inspiring. And I wanted to put those Asian stories on the same platform as stories that you would normally find on any other major US or UK podcast platforms like the co-founder of Evernote and Guy Kawasaki, one of the most well-known marketers out there. Because our stories matter too. And what I've discovered along the way, having arrived at episode 104, is that contrary to popular belief, most people, the successful ones included, don't actually know what their purpose in life is. And that's okay. What makes all the difference for them is their curiosity. The fact that they are willing to try new things. Not to become an expert in everything, but to know enough to know whether it was something that resonated with them and that they wanted to dive deeper. And the more you work on something, the better you get. And the better you get, the more you draw like-minded people to you, which is when opportunities start to appear. Sumi has grown a lot since June 2020. We now have over $35,000 from over 35 countries, almost 13,500 followers, and topped the Apple Podcast charts multiple times at number two for business and careers in Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, and even Brunei. We just had our second Steamy Hangouts where around 30 of you again appeared just to meet new and interesting people and also play some games. And we'll be hosting many more Hangouts in 2023. Steamy has also grown a lot on LinkedIn, where I believe many of you are from. And it's been a joy to discover a platform that I love, not least because I get to double with one of my first loves, writing. And before we wrap up, I'd love to showcase some highlights from this year's episodes. Firstly, there's Adrian Tan from episode 101, aka the King of Singapore, aka the President of Singapore's Law Society. He had so much wisdom to share about how he went from writing subversive best-selling books to being a top IP litigator. And he's one big piece of advice for young lawyers, which I think applies to any young working adult out there. Don't be a substitute. Be complementary. What does that mean? If you work for somebody, let's say a partner, the fundamental error is to think that you should be the partner. The error is to say, I'll emulate the partner in the way the partner thinks, the way the partner talks, the way the partner behaves. A lot of associates do that. It doesn't even have to be in a law firm context. A lot of people try to be like their boss. That's not going to work. You're supposed to complement your boss. You're supposed to be the other piece in the jigsaw puzzle. If your boss is very big picture, then you should be details. 
if your boss is very passionate and fiery, you should be calm and cool. It'd be terrible if both of you are calm and cool all the time, just as it's terrible if both of you are fiery all the time. So you have to compliment your boss. I think that works in a work environment, but it also works in a human relationship. The way people pair up, sometimes they think, oh, you know, you have the same hobbies, you have the same personality traits, blah, 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 blah. So you should get along. But that's not how it works. You have to be the other piece of the jigsaw. And straight from law to the consequences of being on the wrong side of the law in episode 102 with Nottle, an ex-convict who used to run one of Singapore's first and largest social escort businesses. For him, he learned the important lesson of gratitude while in prison. When I was inside prison for these six over years, right? The first one, two years, I still don't felt much. But on the third year onwards, I actually miss the sun and the rain on my skin. I mean, I can see them from my room, but I can't feel them at all. Because between my window and the outside world, right, there's still the maintenance zone. So the sky that we see is still far distant. So I can never feel the rain, feel the sun or, or the rain. And you really miss it more and more as the years goes by. I told myself, the day when I release, I want to immerse myself under the sun to enjoy myself fully. True enough, when I released, I did that. The sun felt great. I promised myself that I will never, ever take the sun and rain for granted. But just three months later, in July, and you know July weather is like getting very hot. It was so hot that I started to curse and swear. Suddenly, I remember, didn't I just promise myself like three months ago to be appreciative? What am I doing now? I mean, I actually felt scared. It's only three months after my release. I went through prison six over years. In just three months, I can forget all these small little promises that I made to myself. Then what more in one, two years to come, four, five years, ten years? Then I'll become the arrogant and ungrateful brat that I used to be. So I tell myself, okay, I need to be serious. I always be mindful about it. Until today. Like this year, the weather was very hot during the July, August, even September. I never curse about it. I never complain about it. What I did was just acknowledge that it was hot. You know, I just say, oh my God, the sun is hot. <laughs> I just walk. Nasa also shares why prisons just don't work and are, in their own way, a death sentence unto themselves. It's not prison fault. It's the culture. They are used to it. At a young age, they went in, they are used to it, they are exposed to all kinds of people. All these people inside will not teach you to be good. And if you continue to bond with them, especially if you are drug addict, what are the chances that you will go back to drug after coming out? So these people will be very difficult to change. I've seen quite a few guys leaving after me, and then after that coming in before I left. So I ask them, how can you back again? They always tell me, Bobian, no choice. You have to understand, they don't know how to survive outside. They have no education. They have no friend. Their friends are gangsters. will lead them back to the same thing. Thirdly, their characters are already set in. They are used to prison lifestyle. You know, getting agitated, very angry about small, small little things. They do not have the right proper value in them. And most importantly, maybe they just keep thinking that, you know, their life is over. Sadly, this statement will eventually become true after a certain age, usually after 50 years old. Maybe pushing it 55. Because after that, you are considered an old man. And you have been in and out of prison forever. What more can they do or contribute? That's why as they get older and older, they will be more and more depressing. A few elderly in their late 50s, 60s, they are telling me they already gave up 
there is nothing waiting for them outside. In fact, some of them are so comfortable that they commit some petty theft to just go back in. Laundry is taken care of. Medication is taken care of. Meals are taken care of. Yeah, rental is taken care of. So they have everything taken care of. The only thing they don't have is the freedom. It's a very realistic thing. Then we have Debbie Liu from episode 99. He's the first Chinese to become a Disney animator and has worked on practically every classic that you would have grown up on. Lion King, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, Star Wars, and even Atlantis. But he didn't have the earliest start in life. In fact, while growing up in Taiwan, he considered himself dumber than Forrest Gump. In Taiwan, every day I face test paper. Everything has only one answer. Then I went to America, my art teacher gave me a piece of paper that's all white. There was no underscore. There was no perfect answer. She gave me this piece of paper and she said, Davy, I heard you love to draw. She said, you can do it. Oh, man, that word was so powerful. I didn't want to let her down. So I went home. I took my homework assignment. She wanted me to draw something represent Chinese. So I drew a Chinese dragon and I gave it to her as a homework. And that drawing became top 20 in the whole United States in 1982. So that became a sensation to my family and everybody else because I am the biggest loser in Taiwan. Then I came to America and read this Chinese dragon drawings because she believes in me. And I want to show her that, yes, I can do it. I can't make straight A's, but I can draw straight lines. So that's what I talk about. I talk about finding your gift, man. Don't imitate. Don't like, oh, I wish I could be so-and-so. We all have a unique gift. I hope every kid or every parent, beginning when your children is young, start believing that they can do it. Don't put them into a box that says, well, you're so, so therefore someday you're going to be though. No. Give them an empty piece of paper mentally and just allow them to find who they are. Yes, they still got to study. Yes, they got to do their chores, but allow them to discover who they are. Are they a bee, butterfly, cricket, or firefly? Whereas at Disney, Davy learned a very important lesson. And it wasn't how to draw cartoons, but instead it was all about the story. I remember going to Disney's internship. The first day they told us that we're not here to teach you how to draw a cartoon character. We're here to teach you to make the best commercials there is ever born. Oh, a commercial? Yeah. The biggest advertising, it's called animation. Why? Because they have a whole slate of industry after animations. Isn't that amazing? When they make this animated film, they recognize after that animated film there is followings of fans that will want to buy not just movie tickets, but they want to buy toys. They want to buy your experience. They want to go to theme park. They want to experience what Simba experience. So for us as an animator, when we go to Africa, we want to take that experience and that kind of journey for every kid or every big kid that wants to see this film and they want to experience it over and over again. And they want this beautiful character resonate in their cups, in their backpack. What Davy shares is quite similar to what Nicole Levinson shared in 103. Nicole used to run marketing at Playboy New York and was also the VP of Marketing North America for LVMH. And she shared the secret sauce behind LVMH. There's some really basic things I learned about heritage brands that are really critical in building startups that a lot of startup entrepreneurs and founders don't 
think about. And it's not because they're not smart. They just don't have the purview of working on brands that have been around for 100 years. But again, it really goes back to thinking about the founder story. First of all, being fortunate enough, I think LVMH specifically, and same with Richemont, have built brands that usually come from a family or an individual. And there's a really strong story of why they created it. And what happens is that over years, that why gets buried. Different people take over the brand, they bring it into this direction, they zag to that direction. Companies make mistakes, companies do things that they think are on brand, but they move away from the why. Why did Mr. Louis Vuitton create a luggage? Let's go back to that because at the end of the day, you know, when you start to think about the world of brands, it's gotten more chaotic, more competitive. It's harder to make noise. It's easier, yes, because we've got the internet and social, but it's become so crowded. And so coming up with your story has to be very authentic. And a lot of people, again, forget about the why they created it, the initial spark of their idea. And I think that is something that I've been able to bring into my current role with my current CEO as just going back to that why and sticking to it. And it seems simple. It seems really simple. Why wouldn't you remember a founder story? But it's amazing in the day-to-day of business how it just gets forgotten because there's too much focus on the product, too much focus on HR drama, too much focus on raising funds. But yeah, I think that to me was the secret sauce that I'll share with you from LVMH. And also another important thing when sharing your personal story. I've found with founders that some of them think that they're repeating themselves too much by telling that story. And they said that they got to drop it. And the thing with building a brand is there's always the audience that you tell that first story to. But if you're in acquisition mode, people still want to hear that story. They want to connect with it. And even in retention mode, they want to follow you along your journey and understand why you continue to make the decisions that you're making. So I think that that is a very important thing to always remind my founder. I mean, we're in the middle of doing a lot of press. And you know, when I talked to my current CEO, his name is Milan Cordestani, just an incredible visionary young guy who had this vision to bridge the gap between skills and employment with the broken college system. And just remembering and always bringing him back to that story for interviews. We talk about other stories that come up, but for me, it's really about making sure you have a very clear and a very concise and a very consistent story that you tell over and over and over. Because we all know that, like I said, there are the new customers, there's the old customers, and even the new customers sometimes forget. You got to keep reminding people of the why. Then we have Marja Continent from episode 95, marketing director at Decentraland. She's had a very colorful career and it was guided by this very simple principle. My whole career has been this fun adventure where I like saying yes to opportunities. And when that opportunity comes, I will definitely go for it. And I do seek them out as well. Like I'm really open-minded and ready to get excited and passionate about new topics. So I think gaming has been something that was with me since we've been kids. Nintendo was a big deal. When we were really small, we were always playing. And then when the PC games came about... I was always curious about them. I loved watching the kids playing and they were playing Counter-Strike and I'm like, go there, do this. This is really exciting. I actually didn't want to play myself anymore. I just wanted to view and, and coordinate. And then I had this opportunity to go and work in a gaming company in Denmark. It was a translation job to start with, but I somehow managed to cancel the job by telling them how complicated language finish is. And it's not going to be something that you can automate through a tool because it's very 
very special and it's not going to be mathematical as a lot of the Anglo languages. I was there for two weeks explaining my case and they stopped the project, but they felt really bad that I actually canceled my own job. So they gave me a job as a QA tester. So I ended up QAing Hitman, which was really amazing. Like a dream come true and to actually work on a big game and to play it full time. It was really, really fun. Which again is very similar to what Nicole shared about her earlier days in PR in New York and working with Elizabeth Harrison. Oh my God. Elizabeth and I had incredible adventures. I learned a lot of things working on the agency side. I learned a lot of things about the kind of companies and leaders I want to work with. I also learned a lot about business from Elizabeth. I usually call her the house of yes. We were always trying to pivot as a company. Like when the recession hit, a lot of beauty brands lost their money in business in 2007. So we were trying to figure out how to move the business into another vertical, which is very hard for agencies. You know, usually you're a beauty agency or a fashion agency, which Elizabeth had built a beauty and fashion. There was some automotive, like I said, but uh, hospitality and real estate was non-existent. And I just remember going into those first few meetings and then being like, can you do this? Can you do that? And me looking at Elizabeth and being like, that's not in our scope of services. And Elizabeth just like kicking me under the table. She said, yes. And, you know, it taught me that no matter what you do or don't know, First of all, what I've learned also is most people in the room don't know either. And you just have to figure it out. You just have to hustle and figure it out. Research, ask, whatever you need to do to get the job done. And that, I have to say, is probably one of the most important lessons I learned from working with her and I've carried through even to today. Apart from saying yes, you must also be willing to put yourself out there and just ask. In episode 96, Aaron Tang, the country manager of Lunar, shared how he got his first writing gig. I knew someone who worked for that online magazine and I'm so shy, you know, I'm just starting out writing. Will, will somebody give me a break, right? So I'm just like my friend and she's like, okay, I'll speak to my editor. And before I know it, the editor's like, hey, I'm going to give you a chance. Uh, we're going to pay you, I think, 50 bucks an article or was it 30 bucks back then? To me, it was really cool because I was pretty timid and shy back then. The idea that someone would actually pay me for my work and I can see my name on a website was quite mind-blowing to me. Okay, I should celebrate. Now, everyone has their Instagram, their own medium. Many people have their podcasts, like how we're doing one today, right? But yeah, I, I wasn't like the most entrepreneurial or outspoken. I was pretty shy. So I thought it was really cool that I could do that. Aaron also ended up writing for the Huffington Post and this is how he did it. So back then, one of the strategies for building an audience or, or building up uh, search engine optimization was to get backlinks from, from powerful publications, right? I've always wondered, like, am I good enough to write for international publications? Like, not just my blog. Am I good enough to write for, say, a, a really famous website? And I was like, okay, I'm going to make this my goal that one day I'm, I'm going to be on the Huffington Post because back then that was like the tier one for bloggers. Well, probably a lot of listeners today are like, what's the Huffington Post? But that's beside the point, right? I, I just decided to pitch. I, I sought out an editor that I thought would be interested in my material. I sent them a cold email, a cold email. And it's like, okay, hey, I wrote this. Do you think it'd be a good fit? And I think it was my second one that I submitted, which the editor wrote back. It's like, hey, yeah, this is good. Uh, we're going to run it. And yeah, it just took off from there. Then we had Jeffrey C co-founder of a YC Combinator-backed startup called Poco. In episode 93, Jeffrey shared how he used his interests in North Korea to build the first and largest social enterprise in the country. 
although it was not obviously without its challenges. It's difficult on all fronts, right? One is they are paranoid. They are always suspicious of any foreigner. I'm from Singapore. So the good thing is that it's seen as a neutral country and it gave us a lot of credence in North Korea, being from Singapore, being from Southeast Asia. And we also bring that philosophy of Singapore is not the most ideological, at least on some of those things. We believe that you take approaches that work for the country in terms of developing the country and improving people's lives. That's it. They are paranoid. It is very hard to work with a system where most people just do not understand what's going on. Like the people in power are still very old. You can educate a small group of people, then they have to go share and educate the rest of the system. That is not easy, right? Because you can bring someone out, they see what's happening and they come back and say, hey, you know, this makes sense. But when they go back in there, they would then have to convince 200 other people that say, hey, this is the right way to do things. So very challenging. You're right. I think, and this, I feel a government issue in most parts of the world. Hard infrastructure is always easier to show as signs of success than soft infrastructure. Building the right system, building the right ecosystem is a very long-term thing. It's not something you can point to very concrete outcomes. And it takes time. It takes experimentation. Whereas if you build a building, you point to it as, hey, look, I've built a building. Who cares that the building is not supporting the ecosystem in the right way? So I think always a huge challenge and obviously it runs up against sometimes like many decades of ingrained thinking that is always very difficult. Chosen Exchange, the social enterprise that Jeffrey ran, won tremendous recognition and awards. It was even cited by the Washington Post in 2018 as part of the rationale for Singapore hosting the first summit between the leaders of the United States and North Korea then, Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. But deep down inside, Jeffrey had his doubts. Yeah, I struggled a lot because I hung on to the work for a long time. I hung on to it for probably almost a decade. But sometimes the feeling like the world is passing you by, right? Everyone's doing super exciting stuff outside. And honestly, for North Korea, for the amount of work and ingenuity you bring to a problem, you could probably achieve 10 or 100x the results outside. Because the smallest of things there is very difficult to solve, right? And I was just getting a visa to go in. You know, the most minor of things results in huge headaches. I guess part of me felt like, oh, you know, I should have built an organization that could take care of itself much earlier and live a lot earlier. And then a part of me is like, oh, you know, I had to spend a certain amount of time to make sure that we could see things to a point where we felt happy and confident about it and it would go in a certain direction. I think the biggest part that is most disappointing is Less the work we do, which it felt overall is very meaningful, generated the impact that we wanted to see given the very modest resources we had. But the overall dynamics of North Korea's relationship to the rest of the world, where we hope that, that there was a pathway for North Korea and the West and South Korea to get the objectives, that there was a pathway for integration. I think that over time, people just get further and further away in terms of their positions. And I wonder if we have crossed this point of no return, where really just envision some sort of settlement to the Korean War, a peace treaty kind of re-engagement with the US and North Korea, for example, you know, whether we've gone past that point. So it's clear from Jeffrey sharing that people can seem successful, but still harbor tremendous doubts. We also had some words of wisdom from Phil Libin, the co-founder of Evernote, on why building Evernote which was a product that was solving his own problem, felt like cheating. You just have to keep iterating. You have to keep multiple iterations. And at Core Street, when we were selling to the Department of Defense, 
it would take 18 months to iterate because you have to like sell a pilot and contracting and then they have to run it and then they give you feedback. It takes 18 months before you can give them the next product. So let's say you need 10,000 iterations to make a really great product. Well, if you have to wait 18 months for each one, that's, you know, 10,000 times 18 months is like 15,000 years. It's going to take you 15,000 years to make a really great product. It won't have 15,000 years. But at Evernote, we're making it for ourselves. You know, we could iterate every 20 minutes. So in the same 10,000 iterations, what you can do in a year or so, I guess, depending on how many days a week you work. And that's a lot. So it's still hard, but now it's possible, right? Now it's possible to get through your 10,000 iterations. So that's why I think it's almost like cheating, like building something for yourself. It's really a superpower. And I definitely recommend to everyone to do that for their first company. Like if you're really trying to learn, you're starting your first company, one of the ways that you can really increase your chances of success is to really just build something for yourself because you'll be able to go much faster. It doesn't mean that that's always the best thing to do. And later in my career, I stopped doing that, but it's a very good way to get started. And we also talked about the importance of learning to love what we hate, which we feel at the time was durance. So I think one of the most important things I did in my 20s was I made a list of all the food that I didn't like. And I forced myself to eat something from this list every day because I was trying to understand what gives my brain the right to not like something. One of the last foods was durian. The first time I had durian, I hated it, but I forced myself to eat it many times. And now durian is maybe my favorite food. Whenever I go to Singapore, I eat my weight in durian. I love durian. I can't imagine why you wouldn't love it. It's so good. But in the beginning, you don't. So I trained myself to enjoy being wrong. Just like you can train yourself to enjoy anything. It's a choice. Most people are told that they're supposed to enjoy being right. They're supposed to not like being wrong, but that's just an arbitrary choice. Like you can, you can enjoy being wrong, just like you can enjoy eating durian. And I trained myself to enjoy it. And now I genuinely enjoy it because it's so much more scalable, right? My company is so much more likely to succeed if I can be wrong and the company still succeeds because other people cultivated that kind of a culture. And finally, we had episode 92 with the retired four-star general and former chief of defense forces, General Tansri Borhan who knows clearly a thing or two about being a leader. I read that a philosophy while you were going back at 4RMM is that be cruel in order to be kind. What does that actually mean? How do you apply that? <laughs> this, this is a motto that I used when I was an instructor in the cadet wing, actually. I told the cadets that I'm going to be cruel to you in order to be kind. Kind to the government, kind to the army, giving a good army officer, good leader. If I were to commission poor fellow, poor leader, I'm not kind, not being kind to the dog. Guess what I mean? So I told every one of them, look, I'm going to be cruel to you in order to be kind. Cruel to you in the sense I'm going to train you, I'm going to mold you, I'm going to make a good officer out of you so that pass over good officer. How would you describe your leadership style? My style is very simple. Ask yourself, where you love your mother most? Because she take care of you from the day you were born, brought you up. If you want your men to love you, you take care of them. So that's why I took care of the men. I look after their welfare, provide them with a good living in the world, good work condition. I give them the best of training, make them a real good man, good soldier. And of course, lead them well by example. As you can tell, 2022 has been full of really interesting and very guests. So if you haven't done so already, I would love for you to just take the time to go back and listen or re-listen to some of these gems. Before signing off, I would love to wish you a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. I'll see you back here on 1st of January with a sneak peek of some of the episodes we've got lined up for 2023. 
I promised Olympians, the CNN correspondent, the CEO of one of the biggest confectioneries in town, a giant in the real estate development world, permanent politicians, and so much more. So don't forget to subscribe and have a great holiday.